0: Hello there, friends, and welcome back to The Longest Night, a little show about the HBO series Game of Thrones. My name is Rob. And my name is Lizzie. We are your hosts, and thank you very much for tuning in. Whether you're a first-timer or a returning listener, we love everybody who listens to us. Um, we do. now Yes, yes, we really do. Um, now, a quick primer for those of you who are new to this. Um, I've seen every episode of Game of Thrones more times than I can recall, and Lizzie is completely new to all of it. Uh, it means that every reaction you get from her will be completely fresh, and honestly, that's what makes this show so fun to do. That was the whole point. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter, at LongestNightsGOT. Um, now, before we start, I just want to give a shout out to your weirdo friend Cass who has just finished reacting to Game of Thrones for the very first time by herself. She was kind enough to speak to us last weekend and give us some of her time. Sadly the audio from that interview we did with her was completely mangled and messed up afterwards. Um, So we will have to repeat that interview um, and patch it up the best that we can. But rest assured that special episode will go live just before Christmas. And I also just want to give a quick mention to the artist who created the music that queued us in today. Uh, the track was Perseverance from the album of the same name by Blood Everywhere, who's an electronic artist slash DJ from London in the UK. If you like the sound of it, you'll be hearing some more of their music later in the episode and we'll be putting the link to their band camp in the show notes. Lizzie, uh, do, yeah. you have much, do you have much to report from your little... Entry into the Game of Thrones universe. You not had any avoiding of memes to do this week, I suspect.
1: I've had some avoiding of memes. Somebody posted a meme of Baelish in the work group chat, and I had to do that thing again of, guys, you know I'm doing a podcast about this, right? You know I'm not <laughs> supposed to have, I'm not supposed to have seen any of this. I I'm not supposed to know who this person is, even though I've seen him in the last episode. Just but. yeah, just uh
0: yeah. Oh well, you know, uh, you have to be less on your guard, I think. Um, This week Which must be nice To have a bit of a A little bit of a breather
1: Yeah it's been quieter On the um, On the political
0: end At least So Yes Yeah a little bit Um, Excellent Right okay I think we'll uh, We'll crack on We'll get into the episode So, today, we are discussing Season 1, Episode 4 of Game of Thrones, which is entitled Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. It was written by Brian Cogman and directed by Brian Kirk, and it first aired on May the 8th, 2011, to an audience of 2.5 million people. And this was the first of 11 episodes that Brian Cogman went on to write for the show. Um, so, Lizzie, this is your first taste of a Brian Cogman episode, and I think as we go on, you'll find that they are in a particular style that's slightly different to the rest of the series. Um, So, what did you make of your first one, Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things? It's a decent episode.
1: I don't think it's... Again, I I feel like there might be a lot of these cases where, you know, it's not this constant stream of, you know, incredible scenes, but it it does, you know, it's necessary to build those storylines more.
0: I agree. Um... It was quite nice to watch this one again, though, because when I did my rewatch about three years ago, this was one of my just flat-out least favourite episodes of the series. Um, Mm. I thought that as much as I enjoyed the stuff at Castle Black, and as much as I like where things progress in Essos, it felt a little bit like sort of like a syndicated police drama a little bit where Ned's kind of scurrying about after clues in King's Landing, and it takes up quite a lot of the runtime. And he's just sort of investigating things, and people are sort of just haphazardly handing information to him. And then you find out that the information he's been given has already been spread to, to three or four people. And then Catelyn arrests Tyrion at the end in this scene that feels like it's a, a cliffhanger from like CSI Miami or something like that and so, yeah, I don't know if you have any um, particular sort of, I mean you were saying it's a decent episode but go a little further into that what what, what do you think generally?
1: No I think you've summed it up in that it does seem like a, a syndicated episode of like a, a cop show essentially that it's this um, ongoing sort of murder mystery and there's all this misinformation being thrown around and, and then obviously at the end it comes, to that, it comes to a head of somebody being essentially accused of the attempted murder of Bran, which is Tyrion. I know yes. we will come to this, but...
0: I know for a fact that some of the officers go to that brothel in Molestown. town, I wouldn't doubt it. Well, don't you think it's a little bit unfair, making us take our vows while well, they sneak off for a little Sally on the side? Sally on the side? That's silly, isn't it? What? We can't
1: defend the wall unless we celebrate. It's
0: absurd. So in this episode, we are introduced to Samuel Tarly, who clearly isn't that good with a sword, clearly isn't supposed to be there. He's going to be in for a rough time of it. Um, So John notices this and defends him. And Then they have a nice talk on top of the wall later in the episode, and Sam explains why he's there when he's probably not supposed to be. The teasing continues, so John threatens uh, one of the Night's Watch brothers with Ghost, and uh, things sort of seem to calm down. And then there's a couple more bonding scenes with John and Sam before they are interrupted by Alyssa Thorne, who explains that they don't understand what it's like to be beyond the wall. And that's generally everything that happens with... um, castle black in this episode so first of all he say hello to samuel tarley um hello samuel <laughs> yeah uh, portrayed by uh, john bradley um yeah. who's actually not far not from far away from where we are from he he's oh, really? from yeah he's from withenshaw and still lives in withenshaw actually wow um yeah he's a big big south manchester guy um In fact, a couple of the um, Night's Watch Brothers that you'll meet uh, later on in the series are from uh, around sort of South Manchester, where we are. Um, So what did you make of Samuel Tarly? This is your first meeting with him. What did you make of him?
1: Well, I did note that the Tarlys were mentioned in the last episode. You know the scene with Robert? Yes. Now the Tarlys
0: bend the knee like everyone else.
1: Yeah, it was a very brief mention, but it's kind of... I don't know if I don't know if I actually asked in the last episode who the Tarleys were.
0: They are just another family. They are about in terms of size and in terms of prominence, they're about as maybe as big as like the Starks or something. But they're just from a different area of the country and they're not the centre of the narrative. I see. Um, so they're based further in the south. Their their castle is Horn Hill, like how the Starks is Winterfell um so sam has been sent from hornhill up to the wall because he is as you can tell he's quite sort of bookish and maybe a bit weak and his father has taken a quite an intense dislike to him to the point where he says that i will kill you if you don't go to the wall um so i mean it, it, when i first watched this episode way back in 2015 it sort of struck me immediately that he shares not only physical resemblance, but the name-ish uh, of um, a certain character from Lord of the Rings. Um, Who is... Samwise Samwise Gamgee, who's sort of like Frodo's friend and helper in Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um Similar-ish disposition. Um, sort of unassuming, nice, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah... Um, so, what general thoughts have you got about Castle Black this week? Not just Sam, but Castle Black generally.
1: Well, I mean, it also it almost seemed like a bit of a rerun of last week's events, in that there's, you know, John who is very skilled with sword, and then these kind of lesser recruits, would you say, where it's, you know, he has to, um, you know, put his um, put his pride aside and you know realize that he's going to be going over the wall with these men he has to take responsibility for them but I, I don't know how you feel about that in that it does it does seem like a like they're retreading that ground that they did with um was it Gren and pip last week
0: yes yeah yeah well um sam is more i think you can tell that they've given him his own episode to be introduced so he's he's more uh, prominent mm. already, and I think it gives way for a lovely scene on top of the wall where Sam explains why he's there, and then they have that other funny scene um, where they're cleaning tables um, and where they're talking about women. And like John realizes that he has more in common with Sam than it maybe even Sam thinks, but definitely more than John thinks. Um, and then you get um, there's dynamics now forming. Where Gren and Pip seem to be on Sam's side as well, where they sort of go to Rast, is the um, the nastier one, who they mm. sort of gag in bed and then have ghost stand over him. The, there are dynamics up, opening up now that will be sort of set in stone for a little while, where there's certain brothers that you can trust up there and there's certain brothers that you can't trust up there and that you should and shouldn't trust. Um, I think, you know, I could give or take the um, the, the sword scenes and stuff because again like you say I feel like we saw this last week but I feel like you know this is such a massive massive story that it's opening up mm. that it's getting kind of hard to it must be so hard to kind of introduce things but not repeat yourself and because there are little things in King's Landing where it's kind of repeated again where it's like it's re-emphasized that it's a dangerous place and and so I think there's this episode there's a lot of re-emphasizing to sort of have I mean I think you'll look back at these kinds of episodes and go oh this is where this was and this is where that was and oh they said this in this episode and ah this came up and I think I feel like it's one of those that benefits on a rewatch that maybe on a first watch scenes especially like at Castle Black it can look a little because basically they use basically exactly the same sets as well Mm. as last week where you just sort of use the courtyard and the top of the wall and that same room again I think as the um, as the season goes on you'll get introduced to more interesting characters and different characters and better characters and, um, like, Lord Commander Mormont will get more lines and that sort of thing. So um, I think at the moment we're just sort of waiting for... I think it's, it's the same sort of everywhere, really, I think. We're sort of waiting for the action to start. I think, as far as I remember, this is the last episode where it's all focused on setup. It starts, next week starts doing things where it's clear that things are moving now and, I mean, things are still moving and things do still move in this episode but they just get nudged on ever so slightly whereas from next week it's sort of like, you know, it's not the second half of the season but it feels like the beginning of the second half of the season next week more Mm. and more. Um, So it does mean that we maybe just have to spend this week waiting for that.
1: We've also not mentioned um, Cersei yet.
0: Yeah, what did you make of his? Because um, he comes more to the forefront this week. I mean, he was there last week, kind of ribbing was, on John yeah. and making fun of him and calling him Lord Snow and stuff. But now we get—he's got a bit more depth this week.
1: So, um, from what I could gather, he had been over the wall himself. He had, yeah, know, he'd been a part of the Night's Watch, um, and he again is just sort of. Very, um, very sort of concerned that his recruits are not ready for what is coming. You know this long winter. There's that quote: "Your boys still, and come the winter, you will die like flies." Yes, and it's just yeah. It's a it's a really good performance. I was meaning to ask. Um, I know I recognise him from somewhere.
0: Um, his name is Owen Teal. Um, right. The actor is Owen Teal. I haven't seen him in anything before Mm. this. And I haven't really seen him in anything since, actually. I think he just kind of turns up in things. Um, Let's see. In recent years, um, he was was in a movie called uh, Tolkien, which was about um, J.R.R. Tolkien. That wasn't a great movie, though. I didn't like that. Mm. Um, And in terms of TV... He's not really been in much since he was in, um, since he started in Game of Thrones. Um, Sky One drama, BBC One drama called River. Another Sky One drama. Another B. Oh, he was in three episodes of Line of Duty, uh, which is a bigger show in the in the UK than I think it is in the US.
1: Yeah, I think there's a very good chance I'm confusing him with somebody else, which is, it could be. Is a, is a great segue, but
0: um... Um, yeah. Well, I. I do like Alyssa Thorne is a complicated character in this because he's someone who you love to hate but also very much admire and respect because the way that he treats the characters we're sympathetic with is horrendous, but the way that he has so much honour and dedication to the Night's Watch is admirable. Mm. And you sort of look at him and go, yeah, fair play, mate. Like, you know, maybe they're not taking it as seriously as they should and, you know, you've seen it and they haven't. And like with the horrible scene where he sort of well, the sort of the horrible scene he describes uh, beyond the wall, where the snows turned on them and things got dark, and so they decided to start eating the horses and then themselves. Yeah,
1: so. he 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 bears the scars quite literally and figuratively mm. as well.
0: Yes, um, I don't know if you have any further notes. If you don't, I've got a fun little an- anecdote about John Bradley. But Ooh, um, go on. Okay, well, John Bradley um, had a lot of it. This is one of his first TV roles. And he basically, he came straight from the stage. And so when he turned up for his first day of filming, he thought, ah, you know, we'll do a few rehearsals, we'll shoot it in the morning. And then he said, I made plans for the afternoon for my first scene. And then he said, but that isn't TV. He said, I'd, grown, I'd done all the stage acting and like, you know, we're a few rehearsals in the morning and then, you know, do a dress rehearsal in the afternoon and we're done. He said with TV, he said, I made plans for two and three o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, and God. we were still filming seven or eight hours later, just the same scene over and over and over again. And he said it was a huge wake-up call to what the world of television was going to be like if he was going to stick around in it for a while.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I mean,
0: that that's kind of... It's a bit
1: of an upgrade, though, to think that's one of your first roles. I know, yeah. What Like, one of the most important TV shows of all time. It's
0: well it's funny isn't it because looking back obviously you know we can call it that now but obviously at the time when they took the role they weren't entirely sure if it was going to fly this was a huge Mm. risk for HBO at the time which seems silly saying that now but um but yeah no nice little uh, introduction to the world of TV for John Bradley there I am Achillesi of the Dothraki I am the wife of the great Carl and I carry his son inside me the next time you raise a hand to me. Will be the last time you have hands. Crossing the Narrow Sea um, to the other, the polar opposite of this uh, story. So we have Daenerys with the uh, Dothraki Khalasar. They finally arrive at Vyas Dothrak, which is the Dothraki capital. Viserys is quite angry, and he says they're marching the wrong way with his army. Um, hmm. Jorah explains that he was exiled and that he sold uh, people into slavery. Um, then we have a scene where Doria Daenerys's handmaiden and Viserys have a, a bath together, and Viserys explains like what happened to the dragons, and he explains the history of Aegon's conquest and the Targaryen history, and then Viserys like comes at Daenerys, um, and then Daenerys fights back, yeah, and. Um, leaves him with a little scar on his face and then Jorah and Daenerys sort of talk about how they want to go home and question Viserys's leadership and that's that sort of wrapped up so um, what notes do you have what comments do you have about um, this whole thing because I think uh, things really ramp up in Essos this week.
1: Oh they really do it's the first time we see um, Daenerys put her hands on Viserys it's a great scene it's um it's that line I am a Khaleesi of the Dothraki I am the wife of the great Karl and I carry his son inside me the next time you raise a hand to me will be the last time you have hands Yeah it's like oh god it's such a great line
0: <laughs> Um yeah there are lots of um good scenes in this um th- this little bit I think um the one that stands out to me, other than um, Daenerys um, slapping Viserys upside the head with a gold chain, is mm. um, the scene that Doria and Viserys have in the bath together. Because this is um, another show-only um, scene that they've added in. Oh um, right. You know, it's one of those like low-budget two people talking kind of scenes, um, and you get a lot of important Targaryen history in this about where they came, like how they came to Westeros in the first place, um, what happened to them like, the dragons and how the... the, sort of, the dynasty fell into ruin and how it faded away um, and how it was eventually, obviously, overthrown about 20 years ago. So, like, you know, about 300 years before the events of this um, series, um, Aegon Targaryen left Valyria, which is where the Targaryens are from, and he came over on Balerion the Dread, which is the name of the dragon, and they basically just... They, they conquered Westeros and he ruled it. And so the Targaryens were then in charge for about 300 years. They had a line of Targaryen kings, um, and then obviously eventually they were overthrown. But they were sort of saying that by the end, all the dragons had kind of died out. Like, you know, the, uh, the size of the skulls of the dragons shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, because they didn't take them flying anywhere. They just sort of chained them up and they didn't grow and so right. they just kind of turned into fire-breathing dogs with wings, and that's a lot harder to keep control of a kingdom. When you rule a kingdom with dragons, and those dragons are suddenly very small, and then they die out, it becomes a lot harder to to rule your kingdoms. Mm.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of talk of dragons in this again. It feels a bit like sort of Chekhov's dragon. If you don't see a dragon soon, you're going to be quite disappointed. <laughs> that might be, might be one of those cutting-off points where it's like, more on this on a future episode. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there was all, there's the stuff with the dragon eggs, like, I don't know if it was last week or the week before. It does seem like there's possibly something, you know, they're building to something there with the dragons.
0: Okay. Um, questions will either be answered or not. At a later date, obviously. Um, I think we'll have to maybe put a pin in that before we go too far. Um, I don't know if you had any notes about the scene where Jorah explains that he sold men into slavery. Because he sort of explained the true history of it last week, which is that some men were on his land. He was short of money, and so he just sold them. Um, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about what that maybe does to his character at this stage. And they mention that he had a wife once, and no longer does. And... all these things that you sort of forget about
1: (laughs) no particular notes but there's a lot we don't know about Jorah and I feel like we're gonna find out a lot more or at least I hope we do because he seems like an integral character that we don't really know anything about at the minute okay
0: um just I will answer this question with questions will be answered at a later date or not but where do you think it's maybe going with him or where would you like it to go with him
1: well, I'm not sure because I don't know if there's this kind of dissension between him and possibly, you know, Viserys because obviously Jorah tells Daenerys that the people of the Seven Kingdoms they don't care who rules them as long as they are ruled well. And ultimately we know Viserys wants to wants to rule them, right? Yes. He wants yeah. to he wants to be this great conqueror. So yeah, uh, it's I, I can't say where it's going to go, but I'm intrigued to find out more.
0: Okay. Um. What have you... Uh, I mean, it wasn't... Carl Drogo wasn't completely absent in this episode. We do get a shot of him, but he didn't have any dialogue... No, no. ...in this episode. um. So it was clearly... Uh, the episode was supposed to focus, really, on less about Daenerys' relationship with Drogo and more about rela- uh, Daenerys' relationship with her brother. And the sort of turmoil that's at the centre of it now because they had a simple dynamic at the start of the series, which was just Viserys rules everybody and Daenerys just sort of does what he says and that's fine, but Daenerys is sort of crafting an identity and a personality and a bit of authority for herself now. And she enjoys the taste of it. And so now Viserys can't just do what he always does And it means that things are changing and that dynamics are changing. And it is great to see, I think, after the first episode or two, to have these last two episodes where Viserys sort of runs the risk because that's twice now he's been injured because he's got a bit close to Daenerys. Yeah. And he needs to learn. He's got to learn. I'm sure he's not going to, but he's got to learn. He does have to learn. But this is what makes a good ruler. Learning makes a good ruler. And so... And Well, in this world, anyway. Um, so, who knows? Um, I don't know if you have any further comments on what happens in Vyas Dothraq.
1: Um, no further comments. It was a bit disappointing to not really have much of a focus on the Dothraki. Okay. There was seems to be quite a bit more in the last episode, but like you say, I think... I suppose the focus had to be on, you know, Daenerys and Viserys and that kind of... Impending Feud That is Sort of About to boil over It
0: seems Yeah Something's coming
1: Yeah I think it's kind of It's moved very quickly I, I think you mentioned this In the last episode But it's from You know In the space of four episodes We've gone from Daenerys being this sort of well, Damsel in distress Essentially To Knowing that She has this power And that She's You know She Like you say She likes the taste of it Yes it's just,
0: oh, what 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 a fast four episodes it's been.
1: Do you know Sir Hugh of the Vale? Not surprising. Until recently, he was only a squire, John Aaron's squire. He was knighted almost immediately after his master's untimely death. Knighted for what? Why are you telling me this? I promised cat that I'd help you
0: back across the narrow sea i think we'll split the king's landing stuff into two we get a small scene where sansa and septum talk about like decorum and grace and the kind of future she's going to have it turns out the sansa is still upset with ned about lady's death
1: hmm.
0: and then janos slint who is the head of the city watch he visits the small council um and says look there's loads of chaos in the city can you help Um, the small council are setting up the King's Tournament, but Ned says, okay fine, you can have some of my men, there you go. And in the background, Arya is continuing her water dancing and deciding that being a lady is very much not for her, uh, Where she does the, that's not me. Um, Quite a a nice line that sums up her character, I think. Um, I don't know if you have any notes about these particular bits, about Arya or Sansa.
1: No, not really. There's very little focus on them in this episode.
0: Yes, um, because all the focus is on Ned investigating the death of John Arryn. Yep. And so his first source is Maester Pycelle. Hmm. And then he speaks with Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, who hints at there's a spy network in King's Landing. Um, Ned then goes to find King Robert's bastard son, who is Gendry. Uh, Jory tries to get a note to the king, but Jamie sort of dismisses him and turns him away. Then we have the king's tournament, um, where Sir Hugh of the Vale is uh, killed in action. Um, we get a little bit of exposition about the Hound and the Mountain and their history. And then Cersei, at the end of the episode, visits Ned and tries to sort of undermine him and warn him off um, any kind of investigations that he's having so what did you make of the King's Landing stuff in this episode apart from it seeming like a bit like a syndicated cop drama?
1: <laughs> yeah, apart from that, it's um, yeah, there's uh, I don't know about this because, like, i like, we've spoken a few times about it feeling like this sort of murder mystery, it's like murder Ned wrote, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's. So I'm assuming that the message they were trying to get along to King Robert was about Sir Hugh of the Vale, because then, obviously, we see in the jousting tournament that the mountain, whether unintentionally or not, uh, takes out Sir Hugh of the yeah. Vale, which it's, is... is a bit bloody blame.
0: convenient, isn't it?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a f- horrific theme, by the way, where he just sort of... The oh,
0: dagger I know. dagger's straight in his neck and then... It's... Ugh, that was the scene. I remember sort of watching it and thinking, Jesus, I know that I've thought this show was graphic, but bloody hell. Yeah. And like the the addition of the fly that's buzzing around him as well, it just makes it more disgusting. And I feel like when they were filming it, I imagine it was just because, like, usually for blood, they use like food colouring and sugar water or something so I imagine the fly was actually really interested in that but obviously in the show it just looks like Jesus is already rotting on the inside and there's a fly turning up to have a look at this and yeah um, but yes how bloody convenient the hue of the veil is uh, killed off just just oh it was the perfect source he had the truth whatever it was and Oh, never mind. And he,
1: he was only one day away from retirement.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it, Mendoza! Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> um, I think that this is... There's a lot to follow in King's Landing this week. There's a lot of stuff dumped on you again. As you kind of have to digest it all and work it all out and pass it all out. And it's... A bit of a shame because I think that individually there are some really good scenes in this episode I do like the King's Tournament um, and um, the sort of the brief tension around that and there's a great line as well from Maester Pycelle early on in this little plot line where he says um, you know for all the weight they're given last words are about as significant as first words Uh, dying mind is a demented mind and I've always quite liked that little look at it because um, obviously in TV shows like this last words are a, a quite a big deal where like they'll have a character go, they'll say somebody's name and then they'll just wither out before they get to say what they want to say to them. But whereas in this, it's very honest about the way, the nature of John Aaron's death, which is just that he was all over the place and he just sort of died very quickly.
1: Yeah. So his last words were the seed is strong, but yes, the seed is like, strong. What, 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 what relevance does that really have in the grand scheme of things?
0: Yeah. Um, If he's trying to tell somebody something, it's a bit too cryptic, I think. So um, just a little history, by the way, the reason Ned is so onto this, he's not just kind of investigating the death of a random man. Um, He is essentially investigating the death of his sort of stepfather in a way.
1: Well, it's also his mentor and his predecessor.
0: Yes. um, So he's he's got a a vested interest in it. So I'm just going to give a little bit of history about where he grew up, okay. um, if you will. So he grew up, um, you know, he was, you know, born at um, Winterfell and then he was moved. So he was born at Winterfell. And so but then he was fostered by Lord Jon Arryn, at the Eyrie from the age of eight. There, Eddard befriended his fellow ward, um, Robert Baratheon, and so John Arryn kind of became like a second father to him. Um, when he reached the age of 16, um, he divided his time between Winterfell and the Eyrie. Um, and so, you know, like, he's he's essentially grown up there and he's got all of his training there. And so it's a little bit strange because we've never met John Aaron in the show. That it does feel like Ned's kind of just investigating a murder because he's investigating a murder and it's murder and it's wrong and he needs to investigate it. But really, what he's doing is he's pursuing this. He's so hot on the trail of whoever could have like potentially killed him that in the end, it's he's he's so driven by this and like so he's gonna maybe pursue this a little bit harder than we can maybe believe at the moment, which probably says to me that the the relationship between Ned and John Arryn maybe hasn't been explained as well as it could have been. Yeah, I did notice that. But I think we're in the stage of the story at the moment of the TV show where this is sort of exclusively for book readers, and so I think maybe they assume that people will just know this when from reading it, because obviously the first five books and the only five books were out by this stage. And so there's a lot of history been filled in there. And I think, you know, if you come straight off those four or five books that you'd read at the time and then straight into the TV show, I think it's gesturing towards things that maybe the book would have gone into a bit more detail with, because it it could um, in a way that maybe the TV shows haven't. But um, yeah, a little scene just with Ned sort of explaining that he lived at the Eerie and that he was mentored by John maybe could have helped a little bit. Well, I was
1: going to ask in the books was John Arryn dead from the start as well?
0: Yes, yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Um, yeah, that's the event that sort of starts off this whole um story. Really, John Arryn dies because then obviously Ned has to. Yes,
1: yeah, it's, yeah. it's
0: sort of like a, there's a lot of cause and effect um stuff in the books um because of the way that George R. R. Martin tends to write, which is that it's less about um finding. Point A, B, and C, and then working towards them, he just sort of nudges things along, and then he thinks, how would a character react in this situation, and then he'll go from there, and how would a character react in this situation, and he will sort of go on from there. So it's, you know, it makes it feel more organic, and about as organic and and as natural as it can be for a fictional story um, that's being written. But I, 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 yeah, I generally agree that the King's Landing stuff in this episode is probably my least favorite bit I still like watching it and still enjoy it, but I think that the investigation stuff, it feels like we've changed tone and we've changed show slightly, uh, albeit briefly.
1: It does, I agree. And Um, there's also, it feels like we have very brief sightings of people who were focal points just an episode or two ago.
0: Yes, like uh, Robert only getting one line. I mean, it's a great line and I love it and I laugh every time I hear it, but it's just one line.
1: I also noted Robert's appearance. He looks awful. Yeah. He looks like he's been drinking for about a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's just got this very sort of swollen puffy face and sunken eyes and Yeah. Um i I know we've spoken before about how he's quite weak as a king. Yeah. He he wants all of the all of the beneficial parts of being a king without any of
0: the the having
1: to defend oneself and...
0: Yeah. Um, it, that's a great... I, I do love his line, though. Um, We've been sitting here for days. Start the damn joust before I piss myself. And Cersei's just sort of sat there going, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Stop embarrassing yourself. Um, we do get a good scene um, that when you've watched enough of the show and you'll be able to look back at this, um, the origin story of the hound and the mountain mm. where the hound was just playing with a toy and the mountain shoved his face into the fire and that's why Rory McCann, the actor, has to wear latex burn costume makeup yep. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you recognise the hound, by the way, if you've had a good enough look at him I can't say I do Well, you've seen Hot Fuzz, right? Yes So, Rory McCann is Michael in Hot Fuzz.
1: Oh, of course. Of course.
0: Yarp. Yeah. That's him. Wow. And I couldn't believe that at first. I know. Um, Yeah. And I think part of it is just because, you know, he's got actual speaking parts in this as opposed to just kind of Yarp. But, yeah, that's Rory McCann.
1: Well, you know I have a problem with, like, recognising people as I've sort of alluded to before by confusing <laughs> Mark Gassis for somebody else. I did also notice we had um Gendry in the King's Landing, which is um Chris from Chris Skins. Chris from Skins, yes. Yeah. Um, looking looking very Chris from Skins. You he, get a you
0: couple kn- more um you get a couple more um people from Skins in this turning up. Um, eventually, not like Nicholas Holt or anybody, but you do get you'll recognise them when they show up if you've seen oh, Skins, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you will recognise them when they show up um, and then we get a final scene with Cersei visiting Ned um, and they sort of have a bit of a war of words and then Cersei wanders away um, I don't know if you have any notes on um, just any of this really
1: well not about the last scene because it seemed very cryptic there wasn't right. much okay. I could really gather from that. I don't know if you have anything.
0: It is a little cryptic, yes. Um. One of those, again, that becomes more clear. when I think this is a good episode to go back to when it's over and you've seen it a million times and, you know, that sort of thing. I don't think this is the best episode for someone who's completely new to the show. I think you can sort of tell that this is the first one that's sort of been overseen by a completely different writer that's not one of the showrunners it's just the first little exercise cuz a little background on Brian Cogman um obviously he goes on to write loads of episodes for the show he does 11 um but he was hired as a sort of he, he knew the books really well and so he was ri- he was hired as a sort of Script consultant whenever they were a bit iffy over the facts of something in the book um, they would consult him and just sort of go Could you just check whether this is true or whether that's true or whether he said this to this person or whether this happened or whatever? And so Brian Cogman was their guy who they would sort of go to he was the font of knowledge uh, For the books and then about sort of you know uh, uh, Some kind of early stage during production of the first season they sort of went to him and said hey, do you want to write an episode? and he was like uh yes Okay, yeah, I'll go for that. And so I think you can sort of tell a little bit that they've maybe given him an episode that's quite um, plot-heavy. Very plot-heavy. But still sort of not action-packed, but plot-heavy. And so, you know, there's a lot of... um, I think it was a a decent episode for them to give him. I think we compare the whole, like... Because from this point on, there were quite a lot of um, momentous events. I think we get back towards the speed of The King's Road with the rest of the season um, okay. really um, so I think they've sort of given him the last one before the jumping off point and it means that he just has to bed in a little bit I think he has to find his style a little bit this is sort of like um, it, it is a weird way to compare it but you know how like the pilot was a little bit bumpy for you because that was you know maybe the, you know it's the first episode they ever did there were loads of logistical problems with it and yeah. um, And I imagine it was a similar kind of thing for Brian Cogman, where it's the first episode that he's properly overseen. And so he has to find his voice in the same way that they found, the same way that Dan and Dave, uh, David Benioff and Dan Weiss, found their voice with the pilot and then had two or three episodes to kind of flesh it out. And I feel like with him, with Brian Cogman, it's maybe this episode kind of has to deal with the same thing, maybe?
1: Yeah, like introducing characters only to kill them off half an hour later.
0: Yes. That kind of thing. Yes, uh, uh, yes so who of the veil? We really hardly knew ye. Um, Indeed. I mean, he didn't seem very nice, but, you know, I don't think he deserved to die. So, oh, no, no. You know, th- you know, th- th- there are laws in this, um, there are morals and laws in this show, and I think one of them is that as nasty as a person is, he probably doesn't need to go out like that. Um, so, and we don't know if he's been accidentally killed or if he's been murdered yet well if it was As a murder it's good aim yes very good aim um, although the mountain is um, you know, quite an experienced uh, soldier I guess mm. um, I don't know if you have anything more to say about King's Landing
1: well I, th- I feel like we'll come back to this anyway but um, Baelish you can never quite tell if he's just a gossip or if he's spinning this web of lies
0: ok yeah what do you think he might be lying about?
1: Well, I'm no, I know we're going to come to this, but tyrion um, The accusation that he plotted to murder Bran.
0: Okay, yep. Yeah, okay. We'll, uh, we'll put a pin in that, and I think questions will definitely be answered one way or another at a later date. You are going to have to find out, I suppose, whether he's telling the truth or not. Of course. This man came into my house as a guest, and there conspired to murder my son. A boy of ten. In the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. So the episode actually opens with Bran having a vision and a dream of Mm. a raven with three eyes. And then he wakes up, and then we are introduced properly to Theon and to Hodor, Um, and then we get the news that Tyrion's arrived back at Winterfell, and he makes Bran a saddle, and then sort of leaves immediately, and then at the end of the episode he reaches it in at the crossroads, um, and he is then promptly arrested by Catelyn Stark, and a bunch of other northern lords. what did you make of the mainly Tyrion and Bran stuff in this episode? What did you make of make of that?
1: Well, I didn't actually notice it at the time, but now I think of you know Tyrion giving Bran the designs for a saddle, and then I think it's Theon sort of says, like, "Why are you doing this?" It it makes sense that there might be that suspicion that he had something to do with Bran's fall. Okay. It's like he's trying to sort of cover his tracks. Almost, it is a bit suspicious that he would just simply pass through um, Winterfell. And
0: yes, to their eyes, he's sort of returning to the scene of the crime. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> and
1: he's he's yeah he's sort of just turning over It's like oh no, what what a shame. That's but um, yeah, it's there's also I, I think the. The scene at the beginning kind of tripped me up for a moment because I was like, Oh, Bran's walking again. It must have <laughs> skipped forward in time a bit. But no, it's just just a dream. Um I didn't pick up on any kind of clues as to what the three eyed crow might mean.
0: Okay. Is it a um, crow or a raven? It well. <laughs> this is a, a book show, um basically I think to avoid problems with um because a nickname for the Night's Watch Brothers is Crow, because they look like crows, because they dress all in black. Okay. And so in the show, they've changed all the crows to ravens. And so they've it is in the show, it is a raven, and in the books, it's a crow. But for the purposes of the show, because that's what we're covering, it is a raven with three eyes, um, as opposed to a, a crow. Um, it just to it was just to avoid confusion with the Night's Watch, I think, because okay. you can't have loads of people calling them crows and then having actual crows and people not quite knowing what they were referring to. And so I think it's a wise decision, but it means that Bran has been dreaming dreaming of a raven with three eyes, uh, right in the center of its head, as well. Which must is be this quite...
1: one of those questions will be answered at a later date things? Uh, yeah.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. My. Um, might take a while for it to be answered. It might quite might be quite quick, but it does get answered at a later date. Um so he wakes up from the dream and we are introduced to Theon first, who is we get a little bit of his backstory in this episode. I don't know if you picked up on any of that.
1: Yeah, the Greyjoy's failed rebellion against King Robert.
0: Yes. So basically, Theon is part of the Greyjoy family. As mm. you will have noticed this in the first and first two or three episodes where theon was like in the scene but not really and he didn't get one of the direwolf pups and he's sort of constantly handing ned his gloves and things like that so basically about uh, 10 15 years ago something like that the greyjoys who live on a series of islands in the sea called the iron islands um mm. they tried to invade the north and they failed and instead of like killing them or whatever, they were basically just sent back to their islands. But as punishment, they had to leave the oldest born, oldest firstborn son at Winterfell with Ned. And that oldest firstborn son th- turned out to be Theon. So Theon is a Greyjoy, but he's grown up with the Starks. And so right. um, as Ned's ward, that's why he's constantly handing him his gloves in previous episodes... And so people kind of make fun of him for that. They make fun of the Greyjoys for their failed rebellion. um, And it means that he's in a position where he's not close enough to old Nan enough to not call her an old bat, as he calls her um, in this episode. So um, that's Theon's history. And we get a little bit more of it with Tyrion when Tyrion's on the horse and Theon and him are sort of not exactly saying nicely a nice goodbye to each other, but they are just saying goodbye to each other. Um, yeah. And we are also introduced to Hodor as well, who's sort of, like, Bran's servant now. Um, Hodor is called the such, because that's all he can say, and um, he's sort of been around at Winterfell for quite a long time, but we haven't seen him yet, so this is our first introduction to him. I don't know if you have any notes about Hodor.
1: Yeah, Hodor's this kind of, I almost want to say, like a gentle giant type character, but yeah, I noticed that he could only say his own name, like he's a Pokemon or something, but...
0: Yes, um, that's very much that Um, And Yeah, with Hodor There's very little to say But he's a bit of a fan favourite As I'm sure you can tell
1: So, I mean, so Where does Hodor come from?
0: Uh, Hodor's just always He's always been at Winterfell Uh, He's just just been hanging around He's basically, he helps with like The stables and the horses um, And he's generally Helps with the upkeep because uh, he can use his strength and his um, physical stamina to carry things around and move things, and that's his backstory really. Um, and he now has been tasked with looking after Brown and carrying him around the place because he can't walk. Yeah. Um. So that's yeah. That's all that is really. So he's kind of just a
1: friend of the family, essentially.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, he's a friend of House Stark, he's a popular person around Winterfell, everybody knows him, he's not exactly like, I mean, he can't really be nasty to people, you know? Mm. And so he, yeah, no, he's a very gentle person, uh, as you say, very gentle giant. Um, So further, way further south, Tyrion travels very far in this episode. Um, Tyrion reaches the Inn at the Crossroads, which is where we were at, uh, in episode 2 where Lady was killed and all of that happened yes. um, with the argument between Sansa, Arya and Joffrey that was all there um, and Tyrion turns up and he sees Catelyn Stark and then Catelyn's like right, okay, moment has come I've got loads of allies in the room need to arrest this guy so what notes have you got about the end at the crossroads?
1: well she almost tried to avoid it she was trying to essentially shield herself from Tyrion but then Tyrion just notices her anyway yeah yeah Um, it was it was quite sudden I think there wasn't much build to um, you know Catelyn at the Inn at the Crossroads it just sort of appeared at the end of the episode and that's your cliffhanger.
0: Yeah, this is one where if you are familiar with the map, it is not so much of an issue. Basically, the end of the crossroads as I sort of, I think I said in maybe episode two, um, that it's about, I don't know, 20 miles north of King's Landing. Okay. Um, And so she will have just been staying there. It's kind of like the last inn uh, before you get to King's Landing and so... Tyrion's on his way down to king's landing from there he was on his way home obviously he's not anymore and catelyn yeah. was on her way back to winterfell which is where they're sort of heading now so um so yeah they meet at the end of the crossroads i think it is all a bit sudden i'm not sure i like the setup of like i don't know it feels like a very easy way to kind of explain who's loyal to house stark and who these houses are and who they are and what they are and all that stuff so like it's it all comes together very kind of quickly and Tyrion's dialogue is just sort of like leading Catelyn Stark to Lady Stark what is the meaning of all this and like it's like <laughs> oh yeah okay we we see what's going on here so yeah. Um, yeah I think it's an okay scene I think it's fine I think it's a bit corny but it's a decent cliffhanger to end on like oh what's going to happen to Tyrion and there we have it so
1: it's very convenient that they'd be in the same place at the same time
0: Like that? Uh, Yeah, a little. But, you know, random events happen. So, you know, I don't mind stuff like that, really. Um, I think now it's happened, I'm more interested to see... At the time, I was sort of more interested to see... I think because the map is so big and because there are so many people in it that it... You know, if they hadn't bumped into each other at the end of the crossroads, they would have bumped into each other on the King's Road like there's only one road north mm. and one road south so you know i think they would have bumped into each other eventually but yeah um not exactly um yeah it's not my favorite scene in the episode and it's not my favorite scene in the series but you know i think it just does the job and it it's there now that's the plot line for you know the next you know the next bit of time which is like you know mm. is is tyrion going to face arrest and trial for Brand's murder, or is he going to prove his innocence, or how is he going to prove his innocence, and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, performs its function, does what it does, sets up the rest of the season for them, so. It's a necessary scene. Yeah, I think necessary is probably the best word for it. Um, mm. But I don't know if you have anything more to say about that scene, or the episode, or anything like that.
1: No, I think we've pretty much covered all bases.
0: Excellent, okay, so, who is your loser, this week?
1: I will say both of these were very tough. There's no um, kind of definite, you know, good guy and bad guy in this episode, I don't think. But my loser of the week is Peter Baelish. Okay. Because I'm getting very bad vibes from him. I think, he, as I said before, either he's a gossip or he's a shit stirrer, and either way, he's, you know, he's looking to. Stir up some chaos.
0: Okay. And who may I ask is your winner this week?
1: Again, a very tough one, but I'm going to say Daenerys. All right, She okay. really came into yeah. her
0: own this week. Yeah. So next, we are at episode five of season one, which is The Wolf and the Lion. Okay. So, yeah, I think we'll just... We'll come back for that. So thank you to everybody for listening this week um, as I said it's blood everywhere who are playing us out right now and we'll be back with the wolf and the lion next week um, I think th- th- this is a favourite of the first season for me I do like the wolf and the lion rather a lot um, so I think setup's kind of out of the way and we're full steam ahead now no, I look forward to it yeah I look forward to speaking to you next week Lizzie. yeah see you next week